0: amen thank you jess for leading us in communion and thank you joe for that song joe wrote that song Um, how special that she would uh, offer to bring that this morning joe thank you you're a blessing to us in how you've been leading us in worship the last couple of weeks so grateful for you my friend and i'm sure many others are Um, well welcome um to church week three of at the table and um I just want to begin, um, as I have many times before, in expressing um, how proud I am um, of you all, as um, us as a church. And I was reminded of that um, this morning. I was filling up the urn up the back for the, the tea. I'm taking Jesus' words, to like fill the jars quite literally, um, and believing that the water will turn into a miraculous cup of tea that will keep you um, comfortable during church. Not that we're here to be comfortable, right? Um, anyway, as I was filling the urn up, I put it in the sink and I turned the tap on and I stood there for probably a good 30 seconds and I was uh, realising that it wasn't filling up and I was a bit befuddled um, by this whole situation, thinking that water into the vessel usually means vessel fills. Um, and then I realised that as I'd put it in that the little uh, lever that you pull had been left open and so water was pouring into the urn but it was pouring out of the urn. Um, and the Lord just spoke to me in that moment and said, Dave, just remind everyone this morning how proud the Father is that we aren't containing his love for ourselves That we are here to be vessels and conduits that uh, receive his love, receive his infilling, receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives, receive encouragement from one another, receive all that we get from him, not to harbor it for ourselves, not to hold it in our stainless steel urns of our lives, but to live with the tap always open that is expressing God's love out into the world. And we saw a great expression of that on Thursday night with um, all who gathered about 20 people for the the vision launch and information night about our food pantry that we're praying that God is going to breathe into life um, as we follow him. And to see the heart for this church to want to pour out God's love into the community um, is incredible. And so I speak highly of you um, wherever I go. And I thank you, all of you, uh, for the way that you do live that way in pouring out God's love and what he is doing in your life. Uh, Story is one of our values here as um, a church community. That means we share the story of what God is doing in our lives. We're letting his story flow through us in the smallest things and in the biggest things um, let's keep the tap open. If uh, you don't take anything else out of today, just keep the tap open. You, won't find, you might find that in the book of imaginations, chapter 5. Um, it's not in the biblical record, but I'll be okay. If you just take home, just leave the tap open. Uh, maybe that's a preach for another day. Anyway. Um, If you are just uh, joining with us um, along the journey of At The Table, um, can I say you've missed out, not because of my preaching, um, but because of what God has been speaking through His Word over the last couple of weeks. Um, In week one, we looked at um, uh, this thought of just fill the jars. When we launched the series, we looked at Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana, Where they ran out of wine, and Jesus' mother came to Jesus and said, Hey, son, do you mind doing your thing? And he said, Not now. Um, And then she went to the disciples and said, Hey, whatever Jesus tells you to do, just do it. Um, And so they were listening out for what Jesus might say. And he got them and said, Hey, um," and he said to the servants, "Um, Guys, do you just want to go and fill those jars up um, with water and go and give them to the host of the wedding? um, that's all they did. The simple routine, mundane, the thing they do all of the time in the unseen background, um, just part of their job. They went and did that. Um, that resulted in this incredible, miraculous moment where Jesus turned the water into wine. And we just looked at the power of everyday obedience. To often in the things that we might see or, or, or feel like they go unnoticed, they're in the background, they're mundane tasks. Uh, But when our everyday obedience is met with the power of Christ at work, um, amazing things happen. Um, You just never know. The next miracle that God wants to do through you might just be in the simple act of carrying a cup of water to somebody or making a meal. Last week, we looked at the table of grace and we looked into the guest list of those um, who were invited to Matthew um, or Levi's house, the tax collector. Um, As Jesus brought them together and we looked at how Jesus was about building longer tables rather than higher fences. And in Jesus at this meal we see that there is a seat for all at his table. And there was an unmistakable welcome um, of all people to himself as he calls people um, to repentance and to surrendering their lives to him. And we looked at the fact that we all have a common need for uncommon grace. Um, And often at tables, we see the extravagance of that grace laid out by Jesus, which is a model for us to follow, reclaiming tables as sacred spaces for us to express the mission of God in the world. And so I hope at some point this week, you have had a moment at the table with a friend or with your family uh, where you have been able to be welcoming of each other, to be understanding of each other, to listen to one another, to eat great food with one another. And my hope and prayer is that in the midst of that, you have experienced God's goodness. And so today we see another example of a meal. Uh, lo and behold, at a table, for that is the series. This is a canvas, this story on the easel of God in which he continues to paint his unfolding story of grace in the world. Um, let's, let's pray before I dive in uh, to the passage this morning. Father, I pray that um, any of the words of mine that make nonsense, I pray that they would fall to the ground and that all of your words would make sense. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that um, as your word is um, brought to life by your power in us, uh, that we would learn to love you more fully and follow you more wholly. Um, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in the act of hearing and in the act of speaking and understanding of your word. Uh, Father, we know that worship doesn't end with the last um, syllable of a song, uh, but all that we do in our lives, in our waking, in our eating, in our dancing, in our going, in our drinking coffee and eating good food, in being together, in all that we do, Father, I pray that it would be an act of worship in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, Luke 7, 36 to 50, um, it's going to be on the screen as we go in chunks. Um, let me begin. If you've got it, open it, Luke 7, uh, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees, um, who we find out shortly, his name is Simon. Um, sorry to spoil it if those details matter to you to hold on off until we find them. I've just ruined your day, for which I make no apology because it doesn't really matter all that much. His name is Simon, one of the Pharisees. And he asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house, Simon's house, and he reclined at the table. Now we'll pause here for a tick. Now Simon the Pharisee, he would have been quite familiar with Jesus up until this point. Not only would he have been familiar, but we can assume that Simon the Pharisee also had a growing respect for Jesus. In which we see evidence of this, a few verses down, which we'll get to in verse 40, where he addresses Jesus as a teacher. And you don't do that unless you have some respect for what this person is bringing, what they are teaching, the mantle that they are carrying. Simon the Pharisee, saw something in Jesus that caused him to want to know more. And this respect that Simon had would have been the result of at least hearing about Jesus and the recent miracles which Luke records in chapter 6 and earlier in this chapter 7. Or perhaps Simon had been close by to some of these miracles and he saw firsthand the miraculous power with which Jesus worked and something about that power caused him to want to know more. There's also no doubt that Simon would have heard about the recent teachings of Jesus as he taught the crowds on the Beatitudes, as he taught about loving one's enemies, as he taught about judging others. I mean, Jesus' messages calling people to a new way of living would have provoked a huge amount of attention by many people. But as we see, Simon the Pharisee, his attention has been grabbed by Jesus, because he is among those who were hell-bent on maintaining the status quo. So they wanted to know more. So Jesus' notoriety as both a wise teacher and a powerful healer picked his interest. And it would now seem that in his lunch invitation, Simon wanted, like probably we would, to know more. So it is assumed that after synagogue service one day, Simon invited Jesus over for lunch for a good old-fashioned Sunday lunch. And I remember Sunday lunches as a kid. They alternated between our best friends, family best friends back in Menai Baptist Church, um, our friends the Stanleys, and often it was hot chip sandwiches at their house. Or alternatively, it was um, chicken burgers at our house with those Woolies uh, chicken patties that may contain traces of chicken. Um, Although I'm sure that Jesus, although would have been happy with hot chip sandwiches or the dodgy chicken burgers, when he got to Simon the Pharisee's house, the offerings would have been far more lavish and enticing. Anyway, Sunday lunch, how good is it? Now in those days at formal meals like this, people did not sit like we tend to do on chairs at tables with plates and knives and forks doing the conventional kind of thing. They reclined on low laying, usually at floor level, low tables with pillows that maybe helped prop them up. I'm not going to do a demonstration, um, <clears throat> Sorry. And they would, um, they would eat like that with their feet extended out behind them and their heads were positioned closer to the table and their feet out the back. Which makes sense in my mind because um, who wants to go through the rigmarole of having to like, move to the table or do a sit-up to eat the cob loaf? Um or do a sit-up or move to eat the egg sandwich? It's like path of least resistance. I like their style. You know, though a practical eating position, it was probably more likely the case that they ate this way to keep their scungy, dirty, dusty tootsies that were covered in Galilean street grime away from the food, that they could position themselves on an elbow closer to the table and their unhygienic feet could be kept away from the tucker. Now with this picture of Jesus in his lunch eating position, propped up on one arm, head close to the table, feet extending backwards out, and those all around the table doing the same thing. A matrix of legs all spread out in the distance with their heads close by to eat and to converse and to be near to one another with this picture in mind. Luke continues, verse 37. A woman of the city who was a sinner learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with the hair of her head and she began to kiss his feet feet and anoint them with the ointment. I mean, this isn't a regular happening at one of these meals. Firstly, it wasn't uncommon for uninvited guests to rock up to a meal like this. There was a public space element to a banquet in a Pharisee's house for which people of the city were invited to come if they liked they could sit around, the not partake in the banquet, but they could sit along the outskirts of the courtyard or the banquet room and they could hear all of the goings-on. Perhaps they wanted to hear what the, the big wigs of town were discussing, talking about, what they were wrestling with. Who knows, perhaps they were casting judgments on certain things. But guests were allowed and one of these uninvited yet at the same time not so out of place onlookers happened to be a local and well-known prostitute now in those days a prostitute was socially outcast a prostitute was labeled among the worst of sinners as they capitalized on the basest and most primitive human desires of lust To make a living. And while the Bible's attitude toward prostitution can appear in places to be quite ambivalent, if you read the Old Testament, and in some parts of Scripture, prostitution is reported in somewhat a neutral atmosphere, by and large, at a broad level, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that while prostitution exists, it is not desirable. And the Apostle Paul, he zooms in a bit further on this not quite desirable factor, and we can see that from his view, this vocation of this woman in the story is more than undesirable. In 1 Corinthians 6, we see Paul writing to the church in Corinth in an era of general moral collapse, stating that young Christians needed to be warned of the pitfalls of the practice of prostitution and other sexual immorality. He argued that the Christian, whose body is a member of Christ, who has relations with a prostitute, is in practice joining Christ to that prostitute, a notion that Paul rejects with great conviction. In fact, he, he sums that up in one word, never with an exclamation mark. Socially, morally, theologically, Prostitution was sinful, which meant that the stigma attached to this woman at this meal would have been debilitating for her. Her reputation going before her in all places, especially this meal, for all of the wrong reasons. And everyone at that meal would have known of her. They would have known of her vocation. They would have known of the incongruence or at least in their own summation of her life, seen the incongruence between her life choices and the social, moral, and biblical expectations commonly held and understood at the time. Now, it would have been common experience for this woman in the story, in a setting like this in particular, to be judged, to be criticized, to be condemned, To be looked down upon. To be whispered about. Oh, here she is. What's she doing here? To be riddled with shame. I don't belong here. Fully aware of her unacceptability. No one understands me. They don't get it. An understanding of how unwelcome she would have been in environments like this. Yet... How we see this woman respond seems to show that there is something deeper happening for this woman. My guess is that her response to Jesus in this incredible act of love, of adoration, of gratitude was not par for the course for this lady, especially at Sunday lunch. Now, we don't know the backstory, but by her actions and by Jesus' response, a lot of commentators suggest that this woman, at some point, whether by direct or personal interaction or as part of the crowds that were following Jesus, had a revelation of Jesus' unconditional love and his boundless grace toward her. Perhaps she was there that day, at sunset that Luke records in chapter 6, when people were being healed of their diseases and where people were set free from their demons that afflicted them. Perhaps she was there and she saw that work and perhaps in that moment there was an encounter, a transformational moment where she's like, well, if it could happen to them, I wonder if Jesus could make me well. Perhaps she was an onlooker with the man with leprosy who was made clean. Perhaps she lived next door to the house where they lowered the paralyzed man through the roof and heard Jesus forgive his sins and healed his body. I'm speculating. Maybe she heard Jesus preach the Beatitudes. Let's not rule this out. And saw herself on the side of the equation of those who are poor hungry, as one who weeps, as one who is feeling empty, who is mourning, who is spoken ill of, maybe that day she heard the promise of blessing for those who need know their need for a saviour. I'm not even willing to rule out that this woman wasn't perhaps one of the guests at Levi's house that we looked at last week, around the table with Jesus, Welcomed by Jesus at that meal. Maybe it was there perhaps that she had an encounter with Jesus and his welcome and his grace and his love that caused her to act like she did this day at Sunday lunch. I mean, there's no other reasonable explanation in my mind for why prepared with an alabaster jar full of ointment, that she finds Jesus at the table, that she manoeuvres herself through the matrix and the web of limbs, running the gauntlet of limbs that were around the table, arriving at where Jesus was reclined, then standing behind him where his feet were protruding backwards. Backwards. And she begins to just weep at his feet. So much so that her tears were flowing with such volume that she was able to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. And then to grasp a handful of her hair which was let down, once as a tool for seduction, now used to serve her Lord. And wipe his feet clean. Then for her to lower herself even further, to kiss his feet with lips that once searched for a version of love, but now only desired to know the taste of sweet salvation. Then for her to not just stop there, but to take the ointment in this alabaster jar. And to anoint Jesus' feet with the aroma of a past now forgiven. There is a depth of love in this encounter. Expressed in the most generous, humble, cost to one's own comfort. Humble, vulnerable, unabandoned emotionally unsuppressed, whole of self kind of way. This act of worship required all of her in this moment. Her mind, her body, her emotions, her past, her present, looking to her future. She was entirely immersed in an act of love at the feet of Jesus. This was a heart abandoned of all insecurity and shame, a life splayed out in worship and adoration. And all eyes would have been on this woman as she bowed her knees at his feet, as she cried aloud, as she maneuvered about upon the floor, as she took whatever dignity she may have had and let it go for the one who loved her so much." This is a real-life, fair-dinky-dye, true-blue example that oozes with the truth that genuine love comes from a heart that is grateful for grace. Genuine love comes from a heart that is grateful for grace, which it appears this woman has received there is, of course, the chance that my theory is wrong. And in fact, this was the very first encounter that this woman had with Jesus. Maybe she wasn't at any of the other miraculous encounters. Perhaps she wasn't there when Jesus taught the Beatitudes on the hillside. Perhaps news about Jesus hadn't spread to her yet. Perhaps she didn't even know Matthew nor his address to be at that meal where Jesus welcomed the sinners. There is every chance that Simon had invited her over as a setup, as a gotcha moment to try and catch Jesus out. Or perhaps she was there looking for work. Which, if this is the case, that this was her first ever encounter with Jesus, this makes this moment as miraculous and as striking as any other. For how beautiful that the presence of God in Christ at a table could transform a life in the blink of an eye. How beautiful. In either case, I'm not saying I'm right on either of them, but this powerful reality stands. The presence of God in Christ at a table can transform a life in a moment. And this ought to fill us with faith and confidence, church, that as we go and as we gather, as we get around tables with others, as we welcome them in, the presence of God in Christ by his Holy Spirit at tables over lunch, can birth a renewal work in the heart of anyone, no matter what. No matter who they are, no matter their past, no matter what their job is, no matter what life choices they have made, no matter what they look like, how they smell, no matter what. If the power of God at work through Christ at lunch could change a life, then... I believe the power of God at work through the body of Christ can change lives now. The deeper we get into this series, the clearer it is becoming to me that it is the gospel that changes lives, but it appears lunch plays a big part too. Now what goes down next shows us that this interaction between This woman and Jesus caused Simon the Pharisee to question everything that he was perhaps coming to assume about Jesus. This woman being who she was and doing what she was doing was certainly throwing Simon off the scent trail. And Luke helps us see this in verse 39 when he writes, Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this He said to himself, he didn't say it out loud, Simon the Pharisee didn't exclaim this, didn't make a song and a dance. He thought this to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Simon had a hard time making sense of if Jesus is who he says he is, And if his actions and teachings have suggested at all up until this point, even in the slightest, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, then Jesus appearing to not know who this woman was and what she did for a job was all of the evidence Simon needed to blow any inkling that Jesus was a prophet, no less the Messiah, the Son of God, right out of the water. The fact that it appeared to Simon that Jesus had no clue who she was or what she did was undoing Simon. In his mind, there is no possible way that a person claiming divinity would associate with such depravity. That the holiness of a prophet would allow the impurity of a prostitute within cooey of their personal space. It is clear in Jesus' dissection of Simon's thoughts that he could not reconcile the fact that Jesus, who he claimed to be, would associate with this woman, no less allow her to do what she was doing at his feet at Sunday lunch. Simon the Pharisee, his view would have been like most other religious folk, also at the table, that if something or someone unclean i.e. this woman, touches something or someone that is clean, i.e. Jesus, then the clean thing or person becomes unclean. This is how they thought. Following this logic then, Jesus, having been touched by this woman, would have been deemed ceremoniously and religiously unclean and among many things considered unfit For worship at the temple. I mean, from that view, it's like Jesus in that moment took on this woman's uncleanliness. It's like in this moment, Jesus became unclean. It's as though, as Jesus allowed this woman to touch him in the way that she was, it's as though he took on her sin which to me sounds a whole lot like the gospel, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that God allowed Christ, the Son of God, who knew no sin, to become sin, to take on our uncleanliness, that we might become the righteousness of God. Right under the noses of the religious establishment, Jesus was upending their system of salvation by self-righteousness and paving the way for this woman, and in turn for you and I to be saved by grace and grace alone. Little did Simon the Pharisee know that he was watching unfold before his very eyes the transformational truth that he who was clean, who was perfect, who was without sin or blemish, became unclean so that we might become clean. As Peter puts this work of grace, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Jesus interacting with this sinful woman was, in and of itself, a beautiful moment of healing and restoration for her. A restoration of dignity where it had been taken. A restoration of love where she couldn't find it. A restoration of healing that she'd searched long and far for, but here she found it. It was also a signpost that pointed toward the cross, Where Jesus, for you and I, absorbed into his body our uncleanliness. He absorbed and carried our sin on the cross so that you and I could be made right with God. The pinnacle of all healing. And so I want to know is somebody grateful for that kind of grace? The grace that was offered to this woman at the table the same grace that is offered, offered to you and to I. Now, as Simon sat there questioning in his mind if Jesus truly was a prophet, given that it appeared that he didn't know who this woman was and what she had done, and as Jesus sat there keenly aware of Simon's inability to cope with the fact that the holy was embracing the unholy, that the stain-free and pure was embracing the tainted and stained, Jesus, doing what he does best, tells a story. He tells a story to reveal his kingdom. Verse 40. Jesus, probably taking a bite of his falafel wrap or a sip of his wine from the table, he said, Simon, mate, I've got something to say to you. And he answered, probably with a, lump the size of an apple in his throat teacher say it Jesus said a certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 and when they could both not pay he cancelled the debt of both now Simon tell me which of them will love him more and Simon, probably thinking, dang it, he's got me here. It's so like the one, oh, I suppose, he knows that he's been caught out, maybe rolling his eyes with a sense of defeat. I suppose for whom the larger debt was cancelled. And Jesus said to him, Simon, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Simon's like, are you kidding? I've just watched this whole unruly thing happen at my dinner table. Yes, I have seen her. I think Jesus's question is perhaps even more deep than have you observed her? Have you seen her? Which I think highlights a dynamic in the way that we can operate with people in our lives who may be different to us. We say we can see but we don't see like jesus does we can observe and we can judge and we can be cynical and critical when we say i've seen but jesus see this woman jesus truly sees her he sees her he says what's your point jesus and my point he says simon is i entered your house mate and you, you gave me no water for my feet, Simon. But she has wet my feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, for goodness sake. And Simon, you, you didn't give me any kiss, but from the time I came in, this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. Simon, mate, you did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, this whole interaction points to the truth that love is proof that a person has received forgiveness. And the more that people are aware that they have been forgiven, the more they will love. Love is. The proof in the pudding. And what this woman did for Jesus at the table, when placed side by side with the story that Jesus has told about the two people in debt, and then how Jesus has contrasted Simon's actions as against this woman's actions, it is in full view of us as we look to God's word this morning that genuine love comes from a heart that is grateful for grace. Love is the fruit of forgiveness. How we love is a demonstration of how we understand God has loved us. If our love is limited, so too might be our understanding of the gospel. If our worship is shallow, have we truly plumbed the depths of his love? If our generosity is narrow, have we understood the breadth of his provision? If our welcome is muffled, have we experienced the volume of his embrace? If our service of one another is conditional, have we truly taken into our hearts how unconditionally Jesus has served us? My experience of life is that quite often you have to practice something to understand it. I'm no good in classrooms. And sometimes we try and understand grace before we give it. Sometimes we try and understand generosity before then we are generous. It's like I used to sit with a recipe and read it over and over and over again and try and understand it. I've got to do this bit here and that bit there and then it'll get down to like the 12th point and I'm like I'm out I don't understand it I don't see how this works I've got to keep referring back to it I don't get it and I would just give up at that point say stuff it I'm done with it I don't understand it and in doing so I missed out on something truly probably amazing not because I cooked it but because the recipe was good. Now I'm learning that the best way to understand is to do. I'm a slow learner. To have a shot even when I haven't got the whole picture. To have a go even when it seems like I don't see how it all comes together in the end. I'm learning not to compare what I cook to the glossy photos in the magazines or on my phone. Because the best way to understand the grace of God is to be a gracious person. The best way to learn to cook a meal is to cook it. The best way to understand the nature of forgiveness is to practice forgiveness. The best way to understand how you have been served by God and loved by him unconditionally is to go and do something really practical to help somebody, even when perhaps, or especially it seems counterintuitive to do so, even to love one's enemies as Jesus requires us to do. We are called to love God and love others. We have boiled down, and many have done over thousands of years, the narrative of Scripture, and we arrive at love God and love others. And if we are to do that, we must give ourselves like this lady, this beautiful lady in Luke chapter 7 did in surrender to God, in passionate worship and gratitude for grace, and allow him to reshape our hearts and our minds and our actions. Because genuine love comes from a heart that is grateful for grace. Now, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks, church that you are loved. Give thanks that you are forgiven. Give thanks that Jesus has shown you and I, my fellow sinful friends, more grace than we will ever truly understand. And I want to leave with you three very practical things that you will take as homework and work out in your own time for you to practice gratitude, for the grace that you have been shown by Jesus. And these aren't going to take any longer than about three minutes. Number one, remember Him. We've done it this morning. We have remembered what God has done in calling us to be a community of His people, saved and redeemed by the, by, by the, by the blood and the body of His Son Jesus. Remember Him. Over 250 times in Scripture, we hear, remember Him. Remember Him. Go and just do a word study on remember Him in the Bible this week. I mean, perhaps there's something you can do each morning to remember what God has done. Maybe journal or a quick prayer while you're brushing your teeth. Maybe read a psalm with your morning coffee. Get practical with your remembering. Remember Him is a way to live in the grace that you have been given. Number two, serve others. Number one, remember Him. Number two, serve others. One of the most profound ways to express your gratitude to God is by serving others in his name. In 1 Peter 4.10 we're directed, as each of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. By serving others you are serving God and showing your gratitude for his work in your life. So what's one way you can intentionally and thoughtfully serve somebody this week? Don't let that question pass you by because this is where the rubber hits the road in how we express our gratitude for what the Lord has done. What is one way you can intentionally and thoughtfully serve somebody this week? And thirdly, use your manners. Tell this to the kids all the time. Say thank you. Point three, say thank you. Thankfulness extends from our daily manners to our being together as the family of God in worship. God honors thankfulness. As Paul says in Colossians 3, 15, 17, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as members of one body to which you were called to peace and be thankful. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God for the Father through him. So who is someone you can thank today or thank this week? Who can you say a simple yet meaningful thank you to? Who could you write a note or a card to? Because thankfulness is a powerful way to show God you are grateful and probably make somebody's life just a little bit brighter that day. I'm going to invite the band to come up and we'll pray and finish up with a, song before we have some coffee genuine love comes from a heart that is grateful for grace and I want us to hold that that vision of this woman at Jesus' feet whenever we find ourselves in a moment of worship, seeing this woman pour out her love to pour out her past to pour out her everything in response to the grace that had been afforded to her. Because, in a sense, we are this woman. We can find ourselves in this story as a sinner saved by grace, as someone who was called out of an old life into a new life, called to put off the old creation, the old self, and put on the new self. And in this moment of transformation at the table, that was happening for this woman as she surrendered to the Lord Jesus as she served him, as she loved him, as she washed his feet, Jesus calls us to go and do likewise.